This morning, we're going to turn to Jonah chapter 3. I'm not going to ask you to stand because we may, um, we're going to read a lot. Uh, and really, we'll read verse, uh, chapters 3 and 4. This is really the second part of a two part series. Last week, we had Jonah, the world's worst um, missionary. Today, we have Jonah, the world's worst evangelist. Um, So it kind of works really well together. Um, If you would, turn in your Bible to Jonah chapter 3. And uh, we'll start there. I'm actually going to read all the way through the end of chapter 4. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for our time together. We thank you and praise you for your word. We ask that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to what you have to say to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah chapter 3 begins, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord got appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, 
in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. So last week we had Jonah, the world's worst missionary, and what was it that made him the world's worst missionary? Well, it was his disobedience, uh, his inaction, and also his calloused heart. Uh, Just to recap, if you're not familiar with the story or you weren't here, uh, at first God called Jonah from Samaria to go over to Nineveh, which was in the northeastern direction, to cry out against it because he had heard of their evil. And instead, Jonah got on the closest, nearest ship headed to the southwest and tried to flee from God. This boat was headed across the Mediterranean, but God sent a storm. Jonah was asleep and and didn't even wake up. And um, instead, the sailors come and they wake him and they're terrified of their lives. They think they're going to die. Jonah admits that he's trying to run away from God and he tells them, hey, throw me in the sea if you want to live. And they say no. And then finally they relent and they throw him overboard. The storm stops. The sailors worship God and Jonah is swallowed by a big fish. Um, It's really quite the epic tale. It's a single chapter. Again, we could have, this could have been a very short book. That could have been the entire story if God so wanted it to be. But instead we see that we find from Jonah that we can't outrun the presence of God. We cannot outsend the mercy of God. And we cannot even outmaneuver the plan of God. And remember that God used Jonah's sin. It was because of his sin that those sailors came to faith in God. Because of his sin, not in spite of his sin. That God actually used Jonah's disobedience to bring people to himself. To make himself known. And so our message this morning is actually, it's not the world's worst missionary. That was last time. This is the world's worst evangelist. Now, if you're not familiar, you haven't been here. uh, Evangelism is the series that we've been doing uh, for the last few months. And evangelism is simply sharing the good news of God. And how God's followers, the followers of Jesus, are called to share the good news about the love that Jesus has for the world. And there's all sorts of different ways that we can do evangelism. Uh, in, our, in our dinner tables on Sunday nights, we've been exploring some of those different things, you know, different strategies or different ways that God has actually gifted each of us in unique ways to practice evangelism. But the most important thing when it comes to evangelism is to do it, okay, regardless of how it happens. Now, some time ago, a woman approached D.L. Moody, the famous pastor and evangelist in Chicago, and she began Um, listing to him all the problems that she had with his evangelism ministry. She didn't like his method. She didn't like his style. She was complaining to him. and, And after listening to her, he asked her how it was that she practiced evangelism. Right? And she said, well, I don't. And he famously said, well, I can see that you're upset. Frankly, you actually raised some good points. And sometimes I don't like the way that I do evangelism. But I like my way of doing evangelism better than your way of not doing evangelism. So an evangelism is not somebody who has all the right answers or knows the right formulas for making friends, influencing people, or winning the world to Christ. In the the words of D.T. Niles, an evangelist is simply a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. A beggar 
telling other beggars where to find bread. The message of the evangelist, as we talked about before, is come and taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and follow me. Because we've tasted the bread ourselves. We know what it's like. But we can't lead people to places that we've never been. And yet the message of so many Christians, and let's just put that in quotes today, doesn't seem to be one that offers life and sustenance to the world. According to a recent Barna survey of unchurched people between the ages of 19 and 35, when asked to give a single word to describe present-day Christianity, they responded with the word, judgmental. Okay, now, whether that's actual reality or whether that's an unfair perception, this is an indication of a major problem that we are facing. Jesus said that we're to go out and to be fishers of men, and yet a lot of people seem to be very intent to scare away all the fish. The Barna goes on to say that that the number one quality that non-Christians are looking for when they want to find someone to talk about spiritual things is someone who will listen without judgment. You know, that, that is really hard. It is really hard to listen to people that don't understand or that disagree with us without judging them. We see Jonah actually lives this out, right? Jonah is, once again, the model of who we do not want to be. See, Jonah doesn't have a problem with his theology, okay? Jonah knows that God is sovereign. Jonah has seen the power of God. He has experienced the deliverance of God. Jonah has heard the audible voice of God calling to him, and he understands the mercy of God, and yet his heart is filled with judgment. As chapter 3 opens, God calls Jonah once again, just as he did at the first chapter. He tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, and this time, Jonah got up and went. And the last time, he fled. And we look at the message that Jonah brings, and it's a message of judgment And we would think, okay, he wants to judge the people. He should be pretty happy. But Jonah is not happy. And why is he not happy about his message of judgment? It's not because he doesn't want to be seen as judgmental. It's because he doesn't want Nineveh to have an opportunity to experience the same mercy that he has experienced. He doesn't want them to have an opportunity to repent. He has no heart for these people. He does not have any recognition that they are, like him, created in the image of God with some inherent dignity and of immeasurable worth. That's not Jonah. See, they are his enemies, and he wants to see them suffer. Jonah has no love for these people, but, but God does. Right. We, we read that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, which can also be translated to a great city to God. And it, it was a three days journey, which, which wasn't how long it took to go, to go there. It was a, a description of how long it took for a proper visit of Nineveh. Right? And this was sort of a, this is a massive town. Okay, back in the ancient Near East, most cities, you could see everything it had to offer in an hour or maybe two. And, and, and sometimes, you know, I moved to Huntsville 16 years ago. That, that kind of might have described Huntsville then. You could see it all in an hour. Uh, not so much today, right? Uh, now you've got a list of things, and you've got to go all over the place and see all the different, the, all the different things that are happening here, right? But Nona, uh, sorry, not Nona, Jonah, Nineveh, yeah. 
Nineveh was a great city. And what made it great? It was the amount of people that were there. It was filled with people who were created the image of God. And, and were they doing wicked things? Well, absolutely. Right? Absolutely they were. Were they ignorant of the things that they were doing? Well, partially, but not completely. But largely, yes. Right? In, in chapter 4, we saw God actually says that there's 120,000 people who don't know their left hand from the right hand. This is not an excuse for them, but this is sort of an explanation for the hearts of these people. They don't fully understand what they're doing. See, in the book of Romans, the Bible actually tells us that none of us is without an excuse. That we can look around at the world, at creation, that, that we can see the beautiful um, nature that is all around us, and that we can know with some certainty that there is a God. That God is wonderful and God is beautiful. And we, we can know from these internal things that God has placed in our hearts, this moral law. And we have an understanding of, of how we should act and how we should treat one another. And yet at the same book, we find in Romans 10, 14, and 15, it says, But how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, nature and creation, what we would call general revelation, give us a sense of who God is. But we can't deduce from observation God's plan of salvation for the world. You know, we can acknowledge there is a creator God without being able to name Jesus, his son, who he sent to, to give us salvation. See, God has to open our eyes and he has to open our ears and he has to send someone to share his message of salvation with us in order that we can believe. Now, Jonah doesn't exactly preach the name of Jesus, does he? I mean, this is 700 plus years before the birth of Christ. And, um, and it's true that, that Jonah's message actually wasn't a message of hope at all. I mean, it was actually one of despair and impending judgment. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And it's not a, a prediction. It was a warning or a promise of what God would do if they continued to follow the path that they were on. See, God did not want to destroy Nineveh. He did not want to see an end to these people. He wanted to see an end to their wicked, sinful ways. God hates sin. But thank God he doesn't hate sinners, right? That he loves sinners. And that is God with Nineveh. He is able to see their hearts. He knows their great ignorance and he offers them a chance to repent. And that's not just how God treats Nineveh, of course. That's how God acts to all of us. That's God to the nations. In Jeremiah seven eighteen, we read, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, if that nation concerning which I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And God's saying, anytime I call out judgment on people or disaster against a city or nation, that is actually an opportunity for them to turn and repent from what they're doing. The message of doom is actually a message of good news. See, this is an advanced warning sign that if, if they do something, they can avoid what's going to happen to them. Now, on, on Saturday, uh, January 13th, 2018, just after 8 a.m., 
the emergency alert system in Hawaii was activated. You may have heard about this. And a message was sent out about an incoming nuclear ballistic missile. This message went out to every radio station and television station, and anyone with a cell phone in the state of Hawaii got a message that ended with the phrase, this is not a drill. Okay, now tensions were high with North Korea at the time. You might remember that. From what I understand, it only takes about 15 minutes for a ballistic missile to, to go from North Korea to Hawaii. And so people literally thought this was the end of the world. They started freaking out. One, one guy had a heart attack as he was saying goodbye to his family and friends for the last time. There's a, a story on, um, on This American Life about another man who, who went into his bathtub and covered himself with pillows and his cat. And he got his cell phone out and his, his life is flashing before his eyes, um, which, by the way, um, hiding in your bathtub with a cat doesn't actually stop a nuclear missile um, <laughs> from what they clarified later. As he's laying there um, in his tub and he's surrounding himself with these pillows, he's got his cell phone and he's thinking back through his life and he's thinking back on the last relationship that he had and he sends a message to his old girlfriend that just said, you were the love of my life. Now, 38 minutes and 13 seconds after the warning was issued, a second warning came out that just said, oh, this was a drill. Like, oops, sorry, we messed up. Okay. Um, but in a funny story, that message was received by the old girlfriend, and she responded back, and they started to have dinner, and they got together again, all because of this or anything. Now, their relationship fizzled, so it doesn't have a great happy ending. But, you know, because of that, you know, this advanced warning. Now, compare that to another morning in Hawaii on December 7th, 1941. You know, 350 Japanese warplanes were launched from six Pacific aircraft carriers, and they filled the skies above Pearl Harbor unannounced just before 8 o'clock. 2,403 Americans died that day. No text, no sirens, no warning, no mercy. See, Jonah knew and realized that his warning of incurring judgment was really an opportunity for the grace of God. And that made him so angry. He wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. See, they were annihilating their neighbors. They were sacrificing human beings. They lived lives of rampant wickedness and violence. And remember what God had told Jonah at the beginning? Their violence, their wickedness has come up before me. See, in Jonah's mind, all he has to do is what? Nothing. If he does nothing, then his Nineveh problem is over. Instead, here he is preaching a warning to Nineveh, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, we compare the response of Nineveh to the response of Jonah. Remember back in, in chapter 1, at the end of it, Jonah's thrown overboard, and he gets swallowed up by this fish. In chapter 2, which we are skipping over, is, is this prayer of Jonah to God after he's in the belly of the fish for three days. It takes Jonah three days to come to grips with who he is and, and to call out and repent to God. And, and he recognizes that God is the one who casts him in the deep and that he gives this cry of thanksgiving. And at the end of his prayer, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And yet for Nineveh, Jonah was on the first day of a three-day journey with this simple message. And what do we see? The people of Nineveh Believed God. His sermon is like nine words. 
Now, a lot of you would pay a lot of money to have a nine-word sermon. Okay, I understand that. That's all he says. But the people of Nineveh believe God, and their belief drives them into action. And immediately they start a fast, and they put on burlap and sackcloth. The king sits in ashes. They commands the entire nation, even livestock, to have burlap put on them and to, and to fast and to cry out to God. And this fasting, it wasn't just about going without food, but it was really a corporate confession of sin, recognizing the evil that they had done. And they confess their sin, and they mourn their sin. They grieve their sin, the consequences of their sin. And it says then they repent and turn away from it. And the king then says, hey, who knows? God might turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may perish. Now, he's not saying who knows as if he is doubting in the existence of God. He's just saying, who knows? Maybe this will work, right? Maybe we can, and this wasn't Pascal's wager, right? And, And Pascal had said, look, the consequences of not believing God if God exists are far greater than the consequences of believing God if he doesn't exist. That's not what this is. This is an entire people going all in together, seeking the mercy of God. So they knew that they deserved punishment, and they humbled themselves before him. And so Nineveh then becomes sort of this strange model of what true repentance and faith looks like. An acknowledgement of our sin, a mourning over what it has done to our relationship with God, And then turning away from that sin and turning towards God. In fact, Jesus even uses Nineveh as an example in Matthew chapter 12 when when he's talking with the scribes and the Pharisees and they're asking him for another sign to prove that he actually is who he's been telling them he is. And Jesus says, the men of Nineveh are actually going to rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The people of Nineveh responded to this tiny sermon, which wasn't winsome. It wasn't compassionate. Uh, Jonah didn't have a heart for the people or a heart for the nation. In fact, Jonah didn't want to succeed. Jonah wanted to fail and be ignored. His message offered no hope, only destruction. He doesn't preach the mercy of God. He doesn't give the three reasons why God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not Jonah. And yet God used him to bring an entire nation to repentance and worship. Now remember that number one complaint about followers of Jesus, uh, that they're too judgmental? Well, honestly speaking, as a judgmental Christian, um, that complaint is probably kind of accurate. Followers of Jesus can be too judgmental, but, but Jonah's greatest objection to God was not that he objected to the judgment of God but he objected to God's mercy. Kevin Youngblood writes that Jonah was scandalized by the inclusiveness of God's mercy. See, Jonah's complaint wasn't that God was too hard on sin, but that God was too soft. And the truth is that, that we live in a world filled with injustice, right? That we long for justice. What's the great saying? No justice, no peace. That's how Jonah felt. If Nineveh would not be held accountable for their terrible acts of violence and injustice, if God let them off the hook, then quite frankly, Jonah doesn't want to live in that world. And he tells God that. And yet what we see so often, and what we so often miss, is that in order to achieve true peace, not only must my enemies receive justice, but I must receive it too. The Bible teaches 
And this is backed up all through our universal experience. We all know this. That we live in a broken world. That we all fall short. That no one is righteous and no one is worthy. That every one of us is more than deserving of the judgment of God because of the things that we have done and the things that we've left undone. For the words that we've spoken in haste and the words that we yelled at the TV last night as Tennessee's driving for their last second field goal. And for the words that we've thought. For committing violence with our hands and also committing violence within our hearts. For, for the things that we've done that can be seen by everyone and for the things that we've done that no one can know. See, Jonah was exhibit A for receiving God's unmerited mercy. He knows the God he serves. And he actually accuses God of being a gracious God and merciful. Being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He said, I knew you would do that. I knew you would let them off the hook. And how does he know that? Well, we actually find those exact words in Exodus chapter 34. God shows up to Moses and as he's passing by, the Lord announces himself as Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, God reveals his heart, and his heart and his character is not overflowing with brimstone and wrath, but it's overflowing with mercy and grace for those who don't deserve it. Remember, Jonah had already experienced this in his own life. Just days before he was stuck in the belly of a fish, God didn't have to rescue him, but he did. And now Jonah stands accusing God of leniency and kindness. How dare you not give them what they deserve? See, Jonah, the forgiven one, is still unable to forgive. Jonah, who knows God's salvation, does not want others to be saved. And even still, God is gracious. The Lord shows Jonah his hypocrisy in his face, of his hypocrisy of loving himself and not his neighbor, for caring more about a plant than he does about people. And really, the book of Jonah closes, um, just like our two-part series does, without really any real resolution, right? The Lord calls out Jonah for his selfishness and his callousness and his pride, and Jonah does not offer an answer. Because Jonah wasn't written for Jonah, but Jonah was written for us. See, if you know God, or if you're just someone who's interested in learning about God, then he may be asking some of those same questions that he had for Jonah to us this morning. So even after all that God has done for us, for offering forgiveness for our sins through the death of his son, do we still think so little of the sinners around us that we take delight in their mercy, in their misery and pain and destruction? And do we care nothing about the image of God, this divine sacred image which is present every man and woman, every boy and girl, regardless of how they see themselves, regardless of how they vote or what party they belong to or what kind of pronouns they want us to use for them? Or are we only willing to pronounce God's judgment because we're not so secretly hoping that God will bring it to them? Do we love because we have been loved? Do we care about people because God cares about us? Do we forgive because we've been forgiven? And are we willing to share that we have found the bread of life in a world beggar so desperately looking for it. Won't you pray with me? Father God, you are good. Sometimes that's all there is to say. 
Lord, at times we long for your justice on our enemies without realizing the mercy that you have given to us. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see how unworthy we are of you and yet how freely you have offered yourself through your son Jesus. Lord, that through him we can find the satisfaction of our souls, the bread of life. Father, we pray that you would be moving and working in our hearts to show us how we might share this good news with those around us. Lord, that our message would not just be one of judgment and condemnation. Lord, but of hope and of healing found in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.